because I grew up on film and television and everything I knew about sex I'd learned on screen. Uh, my parents are from Iran and we, surprise, surprise, my Iranian parents and I didn't talk about fucking. And <laughs> like, I thought you could, I didn't realize women were physically capable of masturbating until I was 16. Yeah. And like, I didn't, I thought like kissing would make you pregnant. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. This particular episode was recorded live at Sundance. And you should definitely go back and listen to my interviews with Reggie Watts, as well as the live show, which was presented by Dropbox. Thank you, Dropbox. And featured Ukarsh Ambudkar, as well as Nisha Ganatra, and today's guests, Desiree Akavan and Lisa Krohn. Lisa Krohn is an icon in theater. She absolutely transformed it, first with Well, and then with Fun Home, which started at the Public Theater, Employee of the Month, was at the Public Theater for many, many years. And then it went to Broadway. We have not gone to Broadway yet. But once you listen to my interview with Lisa Crone, you will understand what an incredible human being she is. And she also speaks about how much art and activism, how they inform each other and when they are useful and leads us in a chant. You'll get to hear from Desiree Akavan, who is hysterical and has a fabulous show out right now. It's called The Bisexual. You can get it on Hulu. She spoke a little bit about what it's like to film sex scenes and the miseducation of Cameron Post, which is also an incredible film. So I'm going to stop prattling on so you can hear from our guests, Desiree Akavan and Lisa Crone. Baby bottles, if anyone needs um, a baby bottle. Lisa, I'm so, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so, you know, I'm a theater person, and it's a Sundance Film Festival, and so I really feel like I'm getting away with something. And um, also, like, pe- people are like, okay, all right, theater, great. Totally. Totally. Well, well, oh, oh, I've heard of that once. Hamilton. Right. They'll keep mentioning Hamilton. Exactly. Right? That'll be the one, the one they know. Um, I did want to start out because you 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 have been acting for a while. I was gonna. I loved your first headshot. Oh yes, that's my first headshot. <laughs> um, so um, <laughs> yes, so uh, so I was eighteen, and yet somehow I I looked like a, a you know, B. Arthur. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I actually brought this um, copy of it because on the other side of it is the resume. Oh, I love um, these. Which is really something. Um, uh, there are credits on here, like in Twelfth Night, I played Olivia's handmaiden, um, which is a pivotal role. And and then um, I have um, in my special skills uh, dialects. I don't know what dialects those were. Although in college I did, uh, we did in my college they did a production of You Can't Take It With You, and I was cast as Reba McIntyre. No, Reba, um, the black maid. Oh yes, yeah. The other, um, the other Reba. Yeah, Reba the Black Maid, and you can't take it with you, because they were concerned in 1970-whatever um, about um, this role. They changed the, the part from a black, a black maid to an Irish maid, but they did not change any of the dialogue. Oh, no. And so oh, no. I still had no. to say lines like, yes, I sure is glad I's colored. But I said them with a brogue. So it was something like, yes, sir, I sure is glad I's colored. So I guess that's what I meant by um, dialects. It also says here that I 
had a, I don't know, I, I really, I, this is a mystery to me, but I claimed I had a special skill in historic dance. What, what is historic dance? I don't, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, something like this. I don't know. I don't really know. I love this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have your prom photo, I think, as well. Prom, no, I never went. Oh, no. That's so funny that you think that's my prom photo. <laughs> I know, I no, kidding. no. No, that was a period where I performed uh, uh, as what I called the lesbian Lola Falana. That is the gayest reverence I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, in my early performing days, uh, you know, the sort of... You know, I was told in college that there wasn't a career for me in the theater. You know, I was told uh, I either needed to gain, you know, 100 pounds or lose 40 pounds. Um, maybe there would be parts for me if I could hold on until I was 40 and I could play somebody's mother. And I was told that I was a, a character actress, which I realized at some point was a code word for lesbian. So, um, so I, there, there, there weren't you know, it was explicitly not a path for me, but I found my way down to the East Village, um, to the performance scene. And then I just, you know, I, 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 you know, did all these like musical numbers, yeah. uh, in clothes that came from, you know, thrift stores. That one, that dress actually, you can't tell in that picture, but it was, uh, spray painted. <laughs> with uh, day glow pink paint and I did dances in black light wearing that dress that and then I had backup singers called the Cremettes. Wait, what, were they, what were they called? The Cremettes. The Cremettes. Mm-hmm. That's a feminine for creamy, cre- being creamy, previously creamy. I think it really re- uh, refers to canned corn. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, that was my second choice. <laughs> right. yeah. and, and this is where you were part of the five lesbian brothers? Yeah, then I, then I was also part of a... a a um uh yes there we are uh a theater uh company collaborative theater company called the Five Lesbian Brothers and um uh we you know did a number of shows and uh we did them in New York we toured them all over the country they're published they're done by other people now this was that picture's from a show called The Secretaries about a uh, uh, bunch of secretaries who work in a uh a company called uh, the Cooney Lumber Mill, and they're a, a slim, fast-drinking um, cult of secretaries. And once a month, uh, they, when their periods were synced up, they would um, take a lumberjack into the woods and kill him with his own chainsaw. Oh, wow. Um, we were ahead of our time, really. <laughs> um, we always joked that we were going to call one of our shows a big, heavy-headed message from five a- angry lesbians who are too ugly to get men, an evening of song. Um, <laughs> To make, to make it sweet and feminine yeah. at the yeah. end. Um, this is incredible. I, you know, Well was this phenomenal hit um, for theater lovers. You went on Broadway after being off Broadway and then Fun Home, which we'll also talk about. I was just curious, like, after being what I'm going to call the it girl, meaning, you know, having all of this success, how did and didn't your creative process change? Does that make sense? Like, did it, how did it affect you? Did you, did you get more anxious about it? Did you feel more free? I mean, I, I had this, I've had the most incredible timing. I mean, there was, you know, there, there wasn't really an avenue for me, um, necessarily. And I, uh, although I did, you know, I did like, uh, summer stock and equity showcases and things like that. You know, an equity showcase I did of a, a musical called Trees which was, uh, you know, at first I was like, maybe this is like some kind of a Chekhovian uh, piece, but it was really about a bunch of trees who wanted to become Christmas trees. Um, 
And um, yeah, it was, it was low. It was low. But, um, but uh, you know, then I stumbled uh, into this uh, lesbian theater collective in the East Village called the Wow Cafe. And I saw this theater company, um, the Split Bridges Company. Um, and they, you know, it was work that changed my life. Um, how, how for you do you feel like? It just ex- exploded my idea of what theater could be. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it means still to this day, it's, and I, you know, have seen it again on video to see if it is as I remembered it. And it was just, it was a different order of magnitude from theater that I had seen up until that point. Um, and, uh, but you know, we were, the work that was being done there, we were so invisible, you know, as, yes. uh, you know, all, uh, all kinds of people started to be lifted out of the East Village, uh, out of the performance scene. Um, and even years later, when books started being written, only now is the work of the Wow Cafe, which still exists, being written about. I mean, when I, when I say invisible, I mean like literally yes. invisible, <laughs> you yes. know. Um, and uh, my, uh, my partner was telling me the other day about uh, she needed to hang out somewhere in New York City for a while. And um, she went into this sort of hipster bar in the East Village and she waited and waited and waited to order a drink. And they literally couldn't see her. You know, she's butch lesbian. Like, they literally couldn't see her. And so at it some point, she, she went and she sat in a booth. And she sat there for two hours. And she was like, it really was a perfect combination of my lesbian invisibility and my white privilege that just allowed me to sit here for hours ordering nothing. <laughs> um, anyway. So, um, uh, but, you know, so at WOW, we had this space that was our space and we were you know anybody who wanted to do a to do work could do work you just had to work on other people's shows and so I had this amazing experience of and and then you know we were creating images of ourselves that didn't exist before we were doing something that felt generative and exciting and uh and a lot of the people who were making this work had they didn't know anything about theater they didn't know the rules of the theater and i would say so much of what i did was informed by watching people who don't know what theater is supposed to be make theater and much of my work certainly initially was about walking back and forth across that line between because you are doing something different when you perform there are formal structures and understandings that make theater happen and i th- and and it, audiences don't necessarily know that they're experiencing them but they are and to watch somebody s- step back and forth across that i mean it's it, just to as a, it's why if you've ever seen something go terribly wrong on stage you will never forget it let, you know, it's the most incredible thing. I'm I'm going to show something that went incredibly right on stage. This is from the Tony Awards of Fun Home to set up um, both the fact that none of these paths were carved until you carved them, and I know co-carved is 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 because theater is a collaborative art. But I do want for people who love Fun Home, it'll be fun to see, and for people who who don't know it yet, um, I would love to just give a glimpse of it. This is from the Tony Awards. In this panel, me and my dad in a diner. Where's Betty? She went home. Lorna's on now. Caption. My dad and I both grew up in the same small Pennsylvania town. Oh. And I didn't know it, but both of us were gay. Where's your barrette? And we were exactly alike. Put it back in. Keeps the hair out of your eyes. So what a crew cut. 
And we were nothing alike. Do not take it out again. Which was it, Dad? Get Lorna. Need coffee. You didn't notice her at first, Dad, but I did. I saw her the minute she walked in. I'd never seen a woman who looked like her. It was like I was a, a traveler in a foreign country who runs into someone from home. Someone they've never met before, but somehow just recognizes. Someone just came in the door Like no one I ever saw before I feel I feel I don't know where you came from I wish I did I feel so dumb I feel Your swagger and your bearing And the just right clothes you're wearing Your short hair and your dungarees And your lace-up boots And your keys Oh, your ring of keys The night that I got to see your your beautiful show was the night that gay marriage passed. It was a really um, meaningful evening. You are adapting Fun Home. How do you do that? <laughs> and do you want do you, is that is too loaded a question? I hate when people ask about my writing, so you, you feel free to say <laughs> go f yourself, Lazarus. Uh, well, it was extremely extremely. Uh, it would it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done, but it was extremely um, difficult. Um, it's based on a graphic novel, which I highly recommend. Um, By Alison, Alison Bechtel's Bechtel. graphic Sorry. novel, uh, Fun Home, which is a memoir. Um, I knew, um, I knew that I understood the structure of the book in a way that maybe other people didn't, because I knew that it was essentially essayistic in structure. And I knew that it was a, because I had made theater pieces based on, uh, stories that I had about my own family. And I had been interested in the nature of dramatic action and the way it gets misplaced in when people tell stories. Because it feels like the action is what happens in the story, but it's dramatically speaking, that's not true because that already happened. Dramatic, you know, on a stage, what is, where dramatic action is placed is, Somebody is on stage and they're trying to do something and it either, you know, you're in the, the present moment. So it's the, the person who's telling the story is the person who is doing the dramatic action. You tell stories because, I mean, generally we tell stories to assert our identity in some way, either because we're pushing against something, we're trying to convince ourselves or someone else of something, and either that takes us where we want to go or it doesn't. That's a, just don't, you know, it's not a, an easy way to write a play. It, it, you know, to, to, to make that a convincing piece of dramatic action. But I knew that I had done it. I knew that was true of Fun Home. Um, and so that was really the, the tough process. And then working with the genius, uh, composer, Janine Tesori, who is really, um, I think the most, you know, she's the great master right now of the American theater. I, musical theater. 
I want to, um, because we, you can actually listen to our first interview, Employee of the Month, and there's a whole lot there, and I really encourage you to, to, to do so. I wanted to ask about your activism now and, and Champ Bank. I would get these emails, um, and I don't, was, has anyone been annoyed or angry over the last couple of years about anything political? I don't know. Um, yeah, there's, but I, so I was, I wanted to hear a little bit about, Segwaying because I'm someone who segued from doing politics and social service to doing something creative. I wanted to hear about the the reverse commute. Well, like you know, like many people, uh, you know, right after the election, I was out in the uh, streets, and um, that felt extremely Im- important. Like we had to have our actual bodies uh, being seen in the street, and of course, it made a huge difference. It has made a huge difference, but I felt. Like, there, people wanted to make a sound, and it wasn't 2468, <laughs> and it didn't exist. And, and so I started talking to a number of different artists and activists, and, and we got together and started to talk about these things. What is the sound we need to make? What kinds of... And, you know, uh, not only do we need better chants, but we also need... Um, you know, what is the content of it? I mean, a lot of this sort of civil rights stuff comes forward, but it's not exactly right to talk about freedom isn't quite what the thing is. Also, that is a term that's been co-opted by the right. So, you know, so this group came together to try to generate new material, figure out ways to uh, get it out into the street, better leader, you know, better ways to lead chanting so that you know when it begins and when it ends. You know, there's nothing worse than a chant. You're like, how, how, when is it going to stop? How long are we going to say this thing? So anyway, you know, I really, I can barely like organize my breakfast. I'm not a person (laughs) to, you know, it's, it's been sort of start, start and stop. But the people who, you know, we have a sort of cohort of amazing people we've had last summer, we had all these resistance jubilees and got all these people to come together to, to sing and chant together. Anyway, but the dream was always to, to figure out like, what is the, you know, how do we inject very current material into the street? So I told Katie that we had like, in terms of that, we had one incredible success, and this was when the Kavanaugh hearings are were going on. And Gene Rowe, one of our founding members, who's an incredible uh, songwriter and performer, had emailed me like at midnight one night and said, we have to go. There was a, in front of Schumer, Chuck Schumer's office, there was going to be a a thing, and she was like, we just have to go. And I was like, what are we going to sing or chant? She's like, I don't know, we just have to go. And we emailed a bunch of people, of course, there were other protesters there, and on the way there, Gene Rowe wrote this um, song, which, and it's a call and response, and so everybody did it. And I asked her, and she said that I could teach it to you. And I just, so this is very of that moment, but it was really amazing to what, I mean, it did exactly what I hoped it was, it galvanized this group of people like this, and then the people walking down the street who have all kind, whatever their assumptions were about many things, but also about what, you know, just like, oh God, the protesters. Like, they heard something different, and it was, you know, it was a really galvanizing moment. So, to, to figure out how to generate more material like this, who are the people who can do it? I just put that out there, and now I'm gonna, uh, yeah. So, so this is a call and response song. Um, I'm not a singer, but I'm gonna ask you to, to do this with me. So if you kind of clap along with me. Okay. And then, Reputation, schmeputation. Reputation, schmeputation. You don't get my sympathy. You don't get my sympathy. Brave women are rising up. Brave women are rising up. Gonna tell you how it's gonna be. Gonna tell you how 
it's going to be. Listen to the women. Listen to, to the, the women. women. Believe the women. Believe the women. Trust the women. Move on over because your time is up. Move on over because your time is up. Stop it, fool, you're not on trial. Stop it, fool, you're not on trial. Though maybe now you ought to be. Maybe now you ought to be. It's a big job and I won't take chances. It's a big job and I won't take chances. Find another nominee. Find another nominee. Listen to the women. Listen to the women. Believe the women. Believe the women. Trust the women. Trust the women. Move on over because your time is up. Move on over because your time is up. That's it. You guys, give Lisa a hand. Gino. Lisa, I, I got you a couple gifts to thank you. Um, I like to give gifts from Employee of the Month alumni. This is from Rebecca Traster. Oh, yes. Good, good and Mad. Oh, signed um, coffee. A, a treat for your dog. Awesome. As well as a notebook so you never stop writing. And then um, Russ and Daughters generously sent Bobka. Um, so <laughs> I'll, be in the, I'll be in the bathroom for about 20 minutes and then I'll emerge with crumbs on my face. Um, Thank you so much. We will see you again at the award ceremony. Yes, yes. Thank you very much, Lisa Crone, for being with us. So fantastic to be able to hear from Lisa Crone. I do recommend you listen to our first episode um, because we recorded a full-length interview on Employee of the Month. You can go back in the archives and check it out. And now, Desiree Akavan. Did you ever do commercial auditions? No, I'm not an actor and I have not auditioned. I've, I've cast myself in things only because of laziness and... Um, uh, just like Nisha was saying. Uh, but no, thank God. There's nothing more humiliating um, than auditioning. It is. It also if did, you're not an actor, sorry. If you're, I'm sure there's a lot of I'm dignity not an in it for the I'm, actors in no. the room. I'm not an actor. But not for me. I did get turned down for um, the non-speaking role of a wife of an immigrant with IBS. It was a local ad in Philadelphia. And I was really upset that I didn't make it. I got the call was back. Was his <laughs> immigration status a, like structure, like a big part of the plot of the IBS ad? I just like, like, as an immigrant, <laughs> my IBS is really intense. It was completely inserted in for he no reason whatsoever. He culinary <laughs> treats of America. I, my, my conspiracy theory is the pharmaceutical company was like, no one will do this, but maybe we'll get someone who doesn't speak English and they won't <laughs> know what they're endorsing. Um, I, I wanted to start with the miseducation of Cameron Post because you were in your first two major things that I would call the slope and, and appropriate behavior. Is that fair? Yes. And you were not in the miseducation. Um, no. And I wanted to find out what, did, so what was that like for you when you didn't have to be running around doing 18 zillion things or were you still? No, it was so much better. It is a much easier job than I thought it was directing a film. <laughs> I had downtime. I took a nap during lunch. Maybe that's maybe that's I literally why, took naps. <laughs> okay, so maybe that's why males don't want more female directors to come out because they're like, this is really easy. We don't want to give this up. It's a great job. Um, as a director, you basically curate an incredible team of collaborators, and then you let them do their job, and you get out of their way. I think 
I think um, if you're smart, you can be a lazy director, uh, and if you have good taste. And that's what happened on that film, and it was the best experience I've had on set. Unfortunately, right before I had that experience, I sold a television series to Hulu that starred me. So after I was spoilt by that experience, I had to go back to starring in something I directed, and it was hell. Okay. <laughs> it was so miserably hard. I wanted to ask about directing a sex scene. This is a little excerpt. I wouldn't know what to do. You can start by putting the do not disturb sign on the door. I really didn't know what was going to happen. Dad. No, I didn't. You did. That part went smoothly. I'm not taking off my rope. What is it? Okay, just because I know there are other people around, like how do you ensure that there's at least a feel of genuine intimacy and excitement? I mean, it's hard enough in real life to um, be in the moment. <laughs> I'm curious what, what it's like when filming. Did you, um, yeah, what that, what that experience is like? I've directed a lot of sex scenes uh, so far, actually. I, the, the television series I made is called The Bisexual and surprise, surprise, there's a lot of fucking. Uh, I'm sorry, can I say that? Yes, that okay? You can say um, whatever you want. So I'm really fascinated by the way that we depict sex on screen. And what's interesting to me is that there's so much communicated between people when they have sex. And when you see it on television, you know, it's... Um, it's, I call, we call it like cut to the fireplace. It's a sex scene, you know? It's all that's communicated in those scenes is like there was intercourse. But I remember, because I grew up on film and television and everything I knew about sex I'd learned on screen. Uh, my parents are from Iran and we, surprise, surprise, my Iranian parents and I didn't talk about fucking. And <laughs> like I thought you could, I didn't realize women were physically capable of masturbating until I was 16. Yeah. And like I didn't, I thought like kissing would make you pregnant. Uh, and I grew up in New York and I still was that, I didn't have friends, but, um, so when I finally was in a position to be having sex, I was like, Oh my God, the movie slide, like so yes. much gets communicated. There's so much happening. Yeah. And it's not just like this simultaneous orgasm, um, which it may be for some in this room, but it's always, it's, in fact, it's always. yeah, that from, from beginning to end, just immediate. But there is an exchange of power. There's a dialogue. There's a communication. And it, so it was so frustrating to me that as a viewer that uh, a director or writer would make all their other scenes communicate story and moving the plot forward, but their sex scenes didn't. Yeah. They just communicated this one action. So I really love utilizing sex scenes as a moment to communicate more than that. And if we kept watching, I swear there was communication. But I mean, that was a flashback. That, was, that wasn't really a sex scene. That was just kissing. But, um, so when I'm, so the practical question of what happens when you shoot a sex scene and those particular ones, that was our first week of shooting. And, uh, I feel like that's how I earned Chloe's trust. It was my second feature and Chloe's 62nd. And it was a really tricky environment to walk into that first week of like, all right, what's our dynamic? And how do you work with yourself and a teenager who has so much more experience than you? And how do you build that relationship? And I remember what we did was we talked about it and I got out of her way. Like I gave her an opportunity to express what she wanted. We were really clear about what was happening with those characters. And then I provided 
an environment for her to not be watched by a million people, to not be backseat driven. And I feel like she got to make a lot of her own choices when previously she's told me, um, since we've made the film, that all the other romantic encounters she's had on screen beforehand, she had to sit down in a room with like, you know, 15 executives who were all male being like, okay, we'd like you to arch your back this way and wear this. And could you be this way? And could you also do that? Like, could you show your desire this way? And it was really nice to put her in the driver's seat and say, how do you think this girl should come? So we're going to show a little bit of the bisexual. And now you will know why you definitely want to watch it and may even want to become bisexual if you're not already. How's that for a plug? Why do we have to lie to a Turkish girl about you and John Grace? Because Leila doesn't want anyone to know that she's sleeping with a man. Why not? It's complicated. How is it complicated? It's a gay thing. So, I'm queer. Everyone under 25 thinks they're queer. And you think they're wrong? No. You know what I think? I think it's different. That when you... When you have to fight for it, I think that being gay can become the biggest part of you. And that you're gay or you're straight and one comes with an entirely different lifestyle than the other, like different clothes and different friends, and you can't do both. And I don't I don't mean to be condescending to you. I don't know what it's like to grow up with the internet. I just get the sense that it's changing your relationship to gender and to sexuality in a really good way, but in a way that I can't relate to. I think you're making a problem where there isn't one. <laughs> Maybe you're right. It is a comedy. That's a particularly serious, <laughs> pseudo-sexy moment. Well, but there is there is a tremendous amount of depth into it, and I like I like my comedy dark. This okay, so this isn't fun for podcast people, but so this uh, water bottle from Sundance, I got one last year, and when we were in the edit and on set, every time I, I got teased mercilessly because it you suck on it and it kind of makes you I guess look like a child, and it makes like a weird obnoxious sucky sound. So every time I was giving like notes to my editor, like <laughs> talking about the order of the day with my producer, I'd be like sucking on this like a baby with a bottle. Do, do it for the podcast audience. I don't know if you can hear it. It makes you like a little pathetic. There's something about this bottle, but I love it. And I insist on carrying it with me everywhere. You've been touted as and duly deserved as as this huge star from Sundance. And I read an article about various female directors who, who had had sort of uneven success. Do you feel like you've had all this success and it just went linear, just like a male orgasm and really it's you like will a female never, orgasm? You will never ask. And um, I mean, I don't know who... I don't, I would say anybody, but particularly an ambitious person, especially a person who works in this industry. Do you think you've had enough success and have them say like, yeah, no, it's been great. I'm super satisfied. (laughs) It's been meteoric. No, everyone thinks they're not getting enough. Everyone thinks that they're, uh, that they're more deserving. And I, I think maybe that's the root of this kind of ambition to want to make work on this platform. I, the tricky thing is defining success for yourself and every, day I'm in the process of it and redefining it. And what was great was that before Sundance, I, I, when I, before I premiered my first film here in 2014, I, I thought about it a lot about how I, what will feel like a successful Sundance. And it just felt like if I'm capable, if I'm able to sit there and watch my film with an audience, that's success. Like I knew I wasn't going to sell it. I knew it was a 
$200,000 movie, which is super starring me. Like who gives a shit? I loved it. It was, it, I love it too. <laughs> it's exactly the film I wanted to make. Uh, my producing part. So I moved to London to be close to my writing and producing partner. And uh, she said this to me when we were editing the miseducation of Cameron Post, because there were these moments at these screenings. We had a lot of rough cut screenings and you feel like, what am I making? I, yeah. I, I can't gauge what the audience feels. And she said to me, you know, if we could pick one of three boxes, box number one, we sell for $13 million, like the film late night. And we're, <laughs> We're we're in the money. Uh, two critics love us. We get an, an Academy Award nomination. Yeah. Or three, everyone hates it. You and I are proud, and we made the film we want to make. I would always choose you and I are proud. Yeah. It, like we look in the mirror and you're like, can I live with this work? Because it takes a real level of audacity to take up 90 minutes of strangers' times being like a, a, a stranger's life saying, pay attention to me. I have something to say. Well, and the excruciating work that goes into it that I, I don't think you, it, 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 it feels awful when you don't feel good about it is what I would say. Yes. It's very personal. And I think, yeah, you want to make work that you can stand behind. And, but whether or not I feel like I've had a meteoric rise, fuck no. I was just reading this article and I was like, I'm going to check with her. I I will say I, everything I made is I'm, it's true to my heart and my morals and my, my taste. And I'm really, really, I'll call that meteoric. Yeah, sure. And you're working on a, yes. But I think that's also, I'm very proud to like, to know the two women you introduced, I I know Nisha and, um, and Lisa, and I also Lisa know... Lisa Cronin, Nisha Ganache. Yeah, and I, I know that they had similar stories. I mean, weirdly, all three of us are queer women. Uh, it's not so weird, yeah, of by the person hosting the show. <laughs> yeah, you're like, it was a choice, you dumbass. Um, <laughs> fair enough. You're like, weirdly, Sundance is only full of queer women of color this year. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's totally not. <laughs> Uh, but let's paint that picture. Uh, but we are all women who took the long road. We're late bloomers. It's, it's not like Lisa's, yeah. uh, like downtown, uh, lesbian theater group was ever, th- was ever thinking, you know, I'm going to be at the Tonys. I'm going to be changing the face right. of musical theater. Well, and I, I don't think you can think that way if you, if you want to actually get anything done. Or that Nisha thought that I would make the biggest sale in 2019 when last year nothing sold, when everybody pulled their business last year and this was suddenly like water in the dry, you know, sand. And it's, I'm excited. I think when people explode overnight, that's not necessarily the best way to pursue your career or your life. And that these are women who have built each brick at a time and have longevity. Um, I hope you continue to work. I know you're working on a, a memoir and um, are going to be um, judging other people's films. Um, I love I'm on to... the jury. That's why I don't just like walk around judging people's films. It's not like I have like a bitchy blog or something. I'm on the grand jury. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I love to give gifts from uh, Employee of the Month alumni. I don't know if you... Oh my God, I was... This is on my list to buy. Okay, good. So Esther Perel, who's a, a, a well-known, renowned sex therapist, wrote Mating in Captivity, and I felt for someone who's doing a show, The Bisexual, this might be a, a perfect gift. I'm very excited. I cannot keep a relationship going. Okay. <laughs> I'm so psyched to learn how to do it, guys. Well, you're make, making me feel better. I knew this, this interview was worth it. <laughs> um, as is this park... No, no, I didn't mean like it wasn't before this. I was like... That, that wasn't what I, no shade. Um, 
This Park Slope co-op bag um, also has babka in it. Um, and again, so my people this to yours. The, Thank you. The most generous gift I've ever gotten. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Desiree Akavan, Lisa Krohn, Nisha Ganatra, Ukar Jambudkar, and I also want to thank Dana Bialik at Slate, as well as Lady Rizzo, who is an incredible performer in her own right. You can listen to our interviews, and she created the theme music. It's really a song of hers that I love called Ink Dip. And our DJ, J. Period, Russ and Daughters, thank you so, so much for the babka, as well as Dropbox. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a really nice review. It actually matters. I know I feel like I'm asking you, please sign my yearbook. What I hope most for you is that you find some fulfillment and meaning and joy, even just for moments in your work, because it is such a slog. And I hope that these were either inspiring, fun, cathartic, or helped you get your dishes done. Whatever makes you happy. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Employee of the Month.